Hello again, fantasy nerds, and welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Pop Santos, joined, as always, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today, we are joined by another one of the notorious McCaffreys, one Matt McCaffrey, who's Drew's cousin and Pat the Sound Guy's brother. What's up, Matt? Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Now, the subject for discussion, drumroll, if you will, finally is Stephen R. Donaldson's Gap Cycle. Starting now with the entirety of the real story for this episode, Drew, fill us in, my dude. What happened in this really, really odd story? Absolutely. So, things kick off in a bar called Mallory's on a station called Commine, far out in the reaches of outer space, where a pirate named Angus Thermopylae walks into the bar with a beautiful young cop named Morn Highland. And a lot of people in that bar see them together and think they know what's going on, but they don't know the real story. And then we find out there are a few more people uh, in that bar who, who know, you know, have, have some better information and they think they know what's going on, but they don't know the real story either. And the real story is that Angus Thermopylae, this pirate, and Nick Sicurso, the pirate who leaves with Morn at the end of the book, really don't like each other. And Morn, who arrived with the rest of her family aboard the Starmaster, uh, disguised as a, a rich ore hauler, but in fact is a United Mining Company's police destroyer, uh, is out looking for pirates like Angus and Nick. And when uh, Angus figures out what kind of a ship it is, he flees the station, he goes to hide in... Uh, in the asteroid belt and murders uh, <laughs> murders some miners out there and does so right in front of Starmaster. Starmaster pursues him, but Morn, driven insane by gap sickness uh, during the hard G of combat, initiates self-destruct on the Starmaster and kills most of the crew. Angus uh, arrives to pillage the ship, rescues Morn and puts a zone implant in her, effectively giving him total control over her body, and returns to Commine Station with her, but he gets set up between uh, Nick Sicorso and a contact that he has with Commine Security and a little bit of help from Morn. Angus is framed for sta- uh, stealing station supplies. Angus is imprisoned, Nick gets away with Morn, and we are left with... Uh, Quite a situation hanging in the air, to say the least. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a lot to say about style. I figure I'll be given a lot more to say about style with the future, you know, in the rest of the books to come. Since I haven't read them yet myself, this was my first Donaldson right here. I didn't notice like any really odd quirks or stylistic tendencies that he like tended to fall back on. Not none that I noticed, at least. Solid prose, you know. Excellent establishing of setting, characters, conflict, the whole, like, Sicorso and, and Thermopylae, you know, the, the, the verses, the tension, the mystery, and then, of course, that theme. What really happened? It was, it grabbed me right away. Um, but my style points for today are going to be, are going to be you know, few and far in between. How about you guys? Yeah, Matt, what did you think? Well, one of the things I think Donaldson does really well in terms of style is sort of chaotic inner monologues because one thing you'll see and it's true in all his books it's not just the gap cycle but there's lots and lots of internal dialogue and the way that i think he constructs it in a way that's quite realistic in the sense that it's not it it doesn't read like a movie script it doesn't read like a like a you know a, a you know, script that's been you know clearly fleshed out and organized. It's very sort of chaotic and random, and you'll hear the same words and phrases uh, used again and again. Just I think like most ordinary people do when they're having internal conversations with themselves. Um, so yeah, I think it really works uh, in that sense. Yeah, I I did notice that uh, this time around how natural the progression of thought was for especially for angus where you could there wasn't always a logical progression to his thoughts but the progression made sense because it was driven by his panic or by his fear or by his anger and and you can 
see how his thoughts would turn that way even though it doesn't really make sense. I do have a lot of this for <laughs> my know? discussion about him specifically. I mean, yeah. You brought that up. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things I wanted to point out with, uh, with style that ties into this uh, Donaldson's ability to present thoughts in this manner is that unlike anything we've read on the podcast before, this is an omniscient narrator. This is not a, a limited third yeah. person. And so we get very easily into everybody's heads. And we get a, a really top-down view of the events. It, this is somebody telling the story to us. This isn't us riding along inside one of the characters' heads or multiple characters' heads. And uh, and I had forgotten. Uh, honestly, I if you had asked me before I reread this book, I would have told you, oh yeah, no, it's limited third person. <laughs> <laughs> really? How long has it been yeah, since you did a last reread, just out of curiosity? Uh, four or five years. Okay. And I'm pretty sure, now don't take me at my word, but I'm pretty sure it goes to limited third person after this book. Ah. I think. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I find that a little more digestible myself. Or I should say less yeah. jarring, but, you know, I've seen it done well in the other way, especially with Bennett. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and the, uh, the other main kind of style point I had was just to talk about the structure of the book how he sets it up in layers. Uh, and I've always loved it. I thought it was an absolutely genius move to open this book. You know, most of the crowd at Mallory's Bar and Sleep over in Delta Sector had no idea what was really going on. You know, and, and breaking it down. And then that, of course, was not the real story. And and uh, and moving further in to the end of Chapter 2, you know, once again, uh, it ends with... The crowd at Mallory's would have found the real story much harder to live with. You know, it, just this building of narrative tension, this teasing of, all right, what what actually happened? I want to know. I want to know. You know, <laughs> yeah. is a stroke of literary genius, if you ask me. Yeah, it is. It is. And one of the nice things about it is that it, it works on a couple of different levels because in those early chapters when Donaldson's or, well, We'll call him Donaldson, but the narrator, you know, um, says, well, here's what the story might have been. Here's what people believed the story was. In a way, some of those accounts aren't actually really wrong. Uh, in fact, in terms, mm -hmm. of, in terms of the key sort of events, some people, uh, you know, the, the narrator refers to some more discriminating people in Mallory's who, you know, are, are a little more, um, a little quicker on the uptake. Some of them mm -hmm. basically kind of have the, the story right, but what the real story turns out to be is, is not so much the events themselves as what's going on inside the different characters, and particularly what's mm -hmm. going on inside uh, Angus. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's a nice little play there um, where, uh, you know, the, the real story is something much deeper and more you know, awful and more sinister, even though people kind of had the right physical events in, in, in their minds. Or... Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, hand yeah, in hand it's... with that. I, I'll say I found it very ballsy on Donaldson's part as, a, as, a, as an author, as a writer, to present us with a story of this nature. Because, like, we kind of got an idea of the ending very early on. We were told that Socorso ended up framing Thermopylae right from the start. The entire point of this narrative is to elaborate on those events. It's the real story. We jump in as readers, not wondering what's what's going to happen or how does it turn out, but rather how did it turn out the way that it did. And for, for someone like me, the kind of reader that I am, what I what I'm you know what I gravitate toward, that's usually a recipe for ugh, get it away, bring me something else to read. But somehow, and I cannot figure out how, this did it for me. Like, I was altogether a good read. It was a good little read. I did it in one afternoon, I'm, I'm, or I should say one morning, and I am primed and ready to jump into the rest. Absolutely. Yeah, which yeah, is unfortunate I, I, because the next step is so much, is in a way, almost very anticlimactic. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll start to talk a little bit about how the, the first book compares to the second one. Uh, but, Interesting. Uh, yeah. But it's, Interesting. it's a very okay. odd change of pace. Uh, but maybe we'll come back to this as, as we go. Yeah, yeah, because the way uh, Donaldson approached writing this book wasn't really the idea of like, oh, this is the first book in the series. 
he wrote this as a prequel to a series he like you know that kind of a thing he didn't he didn't sit down and plan out you know writing oh i'm going to write a five book gap cycle he he initially sat down if i if memory serves me um he sat down to write a short story and the the point of the short story was to create a standard hero villain damsel in distress dynamic and then force those characters to swap roles and and he did that but then he was struggling to um kind of expand the story to figure it out and then he he kind of got a, a brainwave and was inspired by um the ring cycle by wagner wagner yeah and and uh and once he got that idea into mind he was able to flesh out the story that he created here in in the real story in the gap into conflict and like matt said there's a pretty dramatic shift in tone and substance Uh, i mean this book is extremely short right it's uh my my old school hardcover copy is um is about a hundred and uh 166 pages long the remaining four books are all traditionally you know, beefy science fiction novels. Right. Yeah, uh, there's, you know, episode for each half book going forward instead of an entire episode for, well, you know, an entire book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so there, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. But in in the grand scheme of things, I think it still works. Uh, of of course, we we can't get too much into that until we read further into the series. But uh, uh, but. But but I will but say, but I think it's a an interesting little thing. Yeah, and I think it actually works really well. To be honest, if the story started with the second novel, I think a lot of people would have a much harder time getting into it. Or even if there had just been a fairly you know a few more introductory chapters tacked on to the beginning of the second book, even that way, I think it would have it would be. Uh, far less accessible so i think he did exactly the right thing to be honest and it's one of the things that i like most about this book is that it really does do a terrific job of introducing you to a universe and whetting your appetite but also giving you just enough detail about sort of what's going on in the universe to actually make you want to come back for more and i was thinking as i was reading it i know obviously at this stage it's a it's a terrible cliche to compare everything to a song of ice and fire because that's the you know the one thing everybody <laughs> reads but I I thought it was a useful example in this case because when you look at that series uh it's a big complex world and there's all this lore and history and so forth and Martin just drops you right into it without really mm-hmm. you know, and you sort of have to figure it out as you go along, uh, whereas Donaldson takes a different approach, and I think it works really, really well in this setting, which is that he starts with a very small, narrow, personal story that really has, I mean, effectively, it's really just two characters, because Nick Sicorso isn't, doesn't really figure that prominently uh, in, uh, in this book, and we don't really get inside his head much. So it starts out in a very narrow setting, but it's just enough to under- introduce a few of the major players to let you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, some of the, the political setting of the universe and some of the broader you know, themes that are then going to really be blown up in great detail in the following four books. So I, I think it just really works as an introduction in that sense. And it's interesting because as Drew was pointing out, originally it wasn't intended to be just a, a preamble to a much larger story. It was just supposed to be this little novella that ends with Angus being arrested and Nick and Morn uh, le- leaving together uh, in the bar. Uh, but then as Donaldson right. – Donaldson has a very nice afterword to the real story where he talks about how he came up with the idea and how he developed it. And there he says that, you know, it was really this very narrow idea and it was only after he had gone through like six drafts of it or something like that over several years that he finally connected it to this other idea that he'd had 
to do a kind of retelling, science fiction retelling of Wagner's ring cycle. And then he had this eureka moment and realized, oh yeah, I should put those two things together. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting um, that it worked out so well, despite the fact that it was not planned that way, you know, sort of uh, spontaneous. As the best things do. Yeah, and uh, this is another thing I had a note on uh, in terms of how he built the world. You know, like like you said, Matt, he, he takes a really narrow focus, but he he seeds in these little, um, uh, like terms and and little concepts throughout it, and then never explains them. And it, it makes sense in the context of writing a focused novella, where he's like, okay. I want to give flavor to the world, but I don't need to spend time on this because it doesn't directly impact the story. I just want to, you know, give it some spice. And so when you have things like forbidden space, that can mean anything, Mm -hmm. you know, and of course that gets developed much, much more in, uh, in the later books, but, but here it's, it's just, all right, this is setting the stage for what sort of, um, culture what sort of dynamic there is to humanity's uh pioneering mm-hmm. in outer space that there there is a border there is a frontier and beyond that there is something forbidden you know and it doesn't really matter for the story what's forbidden all that matters in context is well angus has gone there because he's illegal you know that sort of thing <laughs> i i I appreciated, uh, it was almost kind of the, the Glenn Cook approach. He's like, I will give you world building, but I'm not going to spend time explaining anything unless it matters for the story. Okay. Yeah. I'm at the end of my style points. I'm ready to go into characters. Anything else that you two gentlemen wanted to discuss style-oriented? I think that's about it for me. Yeah. One One tiny detail I wanted to add to what I mentioned before about how Donaldson writes internal dialogue. Uh, It's just a small detail, but I I noticed it especially rereading this time, is one thing that I do, that I think he does really well, just as an example of um, uh, good internal writing, is uh, the way he does uh, profanity uh, and various forms of, of bad language, because, I mean, it's it's ever present um, throughout this entire series and and it can be really awful sometimes but i think he does it in a in a way that really works uh, in once again because a lot of it is is somewhat awkward um in the way that it, it profanity and you know foul language is awkward when you're really angry and you're trying to get out some emotions but you can't really make <laughs> yeah. it coherent <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's a, a really nice touch uh, that you you know you you have these strange um, uh, you know various uh, curses and insults being mashed up together uh, in a way that that sounds awkward and it actually looks to me at least it physically it looks awkward reading it on the page but when you really think about it that is in fact I think how most people, uh, approach it because when we when we get angry whether we're inside or whether we're screaming at other people <laughs> we tend not to do it in perfectly constructed coherent sentences uh, and so i think he does a, mm-hmm. a, a nice uh, he, he has a nice way of, of capturing that yeah i actually did notice uh, early in the book angus uh when he's angry early on he uses the word fornicating instead of dropping F-bombs. And then by the end of the book, he's full-on dropping F-bombs. Like, you can see him sort of maintaining this veneer of respectability, and then it's slowly just eroding away as he becomes more and more undone mentally. I I liked that a lot. Uh, But I guess on the topic, before we go into uh, characters, uh, we haven't really talked about the graphic nature of the content hey, I was in actually this going to bring this up before we do, I was <laughs> do that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it, it's, it's disturbing. It is certainly disturbing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the actual descriptions were not as graphic as I remembered them being, but that's not to say that they're, they're not still graphic and disturbing. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's not Matthew Stover describing, uh, 
Kohlberg in Blade of Taishal or something like that. Uh, but but this is a, a really um, you know traumatizing, psychologically traumatizing situation for Morn. And because we have the omniscient narrator, we get to see that trauma occurring inside her head. And that's almost worse than the brief descriptions of Angus raping her. Mm-hmm. It is, it is. And yeah. it's, 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 again, it's a testament to solid writing on Donaldson's part that he doesn't actually need to describe things in excruciating detail. He, he gives mm-hmm. you just enough so that you can appreciate the the physical yeah. horror of what's going on uh, but then yeah, really the, the yeah and then really the focus throughout the entire uh series actually is on what's going on inside um and how people react to it and it's it's strange it it feels odd i mean in a way sometimes when you read these things you you almost feel like you need to take a shower afterward um, because some of them are, are a little tough to get through. And so it's also strange to say on the one hand that some of this material is, is, you know, very difficult to get through, uh, but also that it, it's, it, but then also to sort of gush about how well it's written and, uh, you know, yeah, and, and how fascinating right? it is. So, but, but that, I mean, I think is, again, is a testament to good writing on Donaldson's part that he can confront his readers with this kind of a problem, um, you know, the the typical train wreck problem. You know, you don't want to stare, but you can't look away, and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, as uh, um, readers of his other work will know, you, you don't really get more than 50 pages into your Donaldson, no- any given Donaldson novel without <laughs> some kind of incredible violence or rape or you know something yeah. something something horrific yeah. um to really shock you and let you know that um this is not pg science fiction you know this is uh, this is really really serious stuff um in fact i remember uh when i was growing up the first time i attempted to read this series uh, i was a teenager and i was talking about it uh, uh about it to a to a friend of mine whose parents had read it and uh, and my friend was saying that uh um he he had asked his his mom if he could read this series, and she said, "You have to promise me that you're going to wait till you're 25 before you before you pick this yeah. up." Yeah, I, I I don't blame her. Uh, I I I can't imagine if I had read this at 15, I, I would have been I'd have been pretty traumatized. I think uh, certainly. Oh yeah yeah I I think uh, I read. Uh, Thomas Covenant first, and I'm glad I did. Uh, it, it explores some similar themes, but not not to the not to the level of Gap Cycle. <laughs> yeah. So, and and I do uh, think the Thomas Covenant books are a much better introduction to Donaldson and the, his style of writing mm-hmm. than these ones, because I think these ones would be a little maybe too much if they were the first thing that you read. But as you say. Thomas Covenant addresses some civil immersed themes, and it also has some disturbing content in it. But uh, nevertheless, um, it's, uh, uh, yeah. That pretty much gets us to the end of our style discussion, uh, uh, which actually kind of surprised me for how long it took. Yeah, same. Um, but but let's let's jump into characters okay. and let's start with Angus since Have he's to. might as well yeah he's really the main character here and I just want to get him out of the way because it's a little yeah <laughs> so yeah Angus Thermopylae Thermopile as yeah, oh my god as Nick says I, I can never remember if it's Sicorso or or Scuroso. I, I'm gonna screw that up about fifty times going forward although I can see it right now uh, Sicorso. but yeah, yeah let's let's talk Thermopylae. What did you think, Drew? I feel like I cut you off there. Continue. No, I, I was going to say, um, like, what did you guys think about Donaldson's decision to essentially make the villain, and ultimately here at the end of the story, the damsel, uh, the main character instead of the hero? I admire the balls. That really sums up. I mean, I'll elaborate, but I'll just start off by saying, yeah. I admire the balls. It it is gutsy, and again, this is this is actually in a way par for the course for Donaldson because this is something that he does extraordinarily well: is oh. set up 
genuine anti-heroes. Uh, but one of the it, it, the term anti-hero is one that people misuse all the time, and it drives me crazy because people use it to mean a hero essentially, um, but maybe a hero who occasionally says a bad word here and there, or maybe doesn't yeah. does something not very nice now and again. Uh, but Donaldson gives you real anti-heroes, uh, you know, truly, you know, evil, despicable sorts of people. Um, and they're almost, interestingly, they're almost always men. Um, many, many of his stories focus on men who are in some way thoroughly evil or maybe just totally broken uh, somehow, yeah. um, in the case of someone like <clears throat> Thomas Covenant, um, but <laughs> it, it, with Angus, um, it's uh, you know he he spends so much time inside Angus's head, showing you just how purely he's driven by this combination of fear and hatred and loathing and so on, uh, which of course ends up determining so many of the terrible things that he does throughout uh, throughout this book. So it's it's a rough beginning um, and you're certainly uh, if you were expecting you know a conventional PG you know uh, lovable space pirate type you know you, you got another thing coming uh, when it comes to, to Angus yeah, Thermopylae. This is not Han Solo. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and neither is Nick Corso, uh, uh, by the way. Right, yeah, he's he he has his own uh, set of circumstances, which we'll delve into much more deeply in in the second book. Yay. But <laughs> but I think I think it, it was beautifully done, and I think it makes the series so much more compelling to me that you have to work at it to really figure out who you want to root for, because it's set up to make you you know to make you root for. Nick from the get-go where you're like all right here's the guy who's saving the girl from this awful pirate but by the end of the book despite all of this horrible stuff Angus has done you start feeling sympathy for him and and while you don't lose the sympathy for Morn she I think she's the most consistent character in the book in terms of like rooting interest but you you uh you see Nick through Angus's eyes. You see how Angus feels persecuted. You see the fear, and you see the way he has become his own worst enemy. He has undone himself through his actions. And, and Nick loses that heroic luster by the end of the book, and he becomes an antagonist of, of Angus's, like, really directly in a personal way, rather than this meta... Um, uh, archetypal way of like hero versus villain. It's like, no, these are both villains and they, they have a personal vendetta with each other. And to me, that just makes this series so much more complicated and therefore compelling than, uh, you know, any sort of book that sticks with the archetypal roles of hero and villain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I will say. This yeah, I is think an that's right. And realized character Angus, in that we get as as Matt was elaborating on, and Drew, you you were touching on this a lot too. We get like all this context for these horrific decisions that he's making left and right, and obviously they are not wholesome decisions. But we can see how every act of violence, be it mental or physical or sexual, is triggered by his own insecurities and his own paranoia. You're 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 both right in that. Fear rules Angus entirely, and everything he does is an act to combat that fear. There's really nothing else about Angus that I was going to say, uh, besides the fact that I hope we don't really get more of him in the future. I kind of hope we're done with his story. Can either of you confirm that, or would that be a bit of a spoiler? Well, you didn't find out. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta read. I'll and... assume we're getting a lot more of Socorso in the future. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yes. We 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 are. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. I mean that that Corso is my guy. I mean he was like our Captain Jack Sparrow. You know, on paper, if you look at what he is, where he comes from, what he wants, it's the guy that you know on paper no one should like, but obviously in person, the one who everyone loves. You know, charming, mysterious, dark, clever, sociable. Most importantly, sociable. I mean, it it feels like Donaldson is trying to 
force him onto me. And I don't have a problem with that. It's like, yeah, you are supposed to like this guy. And I'm going, okay, yeah, sounds good. Which normally I don't do. All right, all right. Um, yeah, so th- this but is But we haven't those... talked about Morn yet. Oh, 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 sorry. If you want to keep talking about Nick, we we can we can do that. No, um, no, no, no. In fact, I think it would uh, be getting more too many too much into spoilers. So we'll just we'll just give that a, okay. a, a pass, maybe. Fair so, enough. Fair um, enough. Yeah, yeah. But but with Morn, um, I really like her as a character. She she can be frustrating at points. Okay. Um, but there's a nobility to her in in her insistence on persevering and grasping at any possible straw to to find her salvation that i i just find really impressive yes and in a way i think it's fair to say that morn is the only genuine victim in this story uh when i say genuine i i mean um she's the only one who begins as a, as a victim she's the only innocent victim yeah. in, in a sense um the more mm-hmm. we learn about the other characters the less we like them generally <laughs> speaking uh, and the more we learn about some of the horrific things they have done and they will do but Morn, at least it comes to us in the story as somebody who is essentially good and she doesn't unlike the other characters she doesn't come into the story by committing a horrific crime of some sort. Um, she, yeah, she, right. she certainly <laughs> okay. does not okay. in any way begin um, to deserve the things that happen to her. Now, in terms of the, the things that she does, obviously, um, I'm not sure if we should talk about this too much because maybe it's too spoilery for this book, uh, but she obviously does do something catastrophic Um uh, yeah. when, when we first meet her, but it's it wasn't a moral choice on her part. Um, the whole point is that it was something that's outside of her control that she was completely unaware of, uh, and so she can't really be yes. held accountable for that. Um, however, she is the victim of circumstance. Yes, yes, and also whereas the others are victim of their own choices. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And interesting. Of course, Angus really works to confuse those two things for her um he sees that she's Mm -hmm. horrified at at what she's done uh, and he uses that against her and and uh through his abuse tries to convince her that in fact she is responsible essentially um not so much that she made a choice but that there's something inside her some um fundamental part of of her personality that is responsible for what she's done and he uses that as a way to destroy her essentially and try and uh, convince her to uh to despair um so uh once more she's certainly doesn't isn't more morally responsible for uh, that uh, that particular catastrophic decision that she makes but angus tries to convince her that in a way that she, she really is i found uh I found Morn to be a frustrating character because I spent 90% of the narrative want like rooting for her. I should say 100% of the narrative. Obviously, I was I'm still rooting for her. She and you were both absolutely correct in that she's clearly distinct from our other two characters in that the the writer the Donaldson has given you plenty of reason to sympathize with her above others. I mean, she is very clearly the victim here. But at the end of the and I may, perhaps both of you can help me wrap my mind around this. Why is it that she decides to lie to, or at least to neglect a lot of the more horrifying truths about Angus and the fact that he is a rapist and that he is a murderer and he is a literal slave taker and ter- like, <clears throat> terrifying abuser? Like, like she she holds back the worst of his crimes, supposedly on on, on just because of the fact that you know she wants to cover for uh, the fact. What, why is it? I have a, 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 I have it right here. Oh my god, what was it? Oh, because uh, a- Angus would rather life in prison than the death penalty, so he in return is also not outing Nick for his <clears throat> contact and security. Is that why that she like she? I don't understand why we ended in the way that we did with everybody still remaining <laughs> to keep each other's secrets yeah. and to to hide each other's dirtiest laundry. I don't understand why. I mean, 
she should hates Angus, right? Yeah. She she should and she does. She and does. and that's and that's she crucial does. to realize that she she does hate him. Nevertheless, I would say that there's both a practical and a more psychological reason for the for her decision to ultimately save Angus. The practical one is that by revealing Angus's crimes, she would in turn have to also reveal that she has the zone implant. And mm-hmm. that could would essentially be the end of her life. Um because yeah. there there's How, no it can't be removed? Uh, I, I think it, it, it can, but that that would end her career as a cop. That would end her career in space because the fact that she has gap, gap sickness would become known. She would never be able to fly on a ship again due to the danger. Um, and she is at least somewhat complicit in in her choice at the end to keep the zone implant. She has now become complicit in the illegal side of the zone implant. Okay. Yes, and, and so, also remember that even though she wasn't sort of morally responsible for it, she still doesn't want people to know that she was ultimately responsible for the, the deaths of lots of people that she cared about, including her own family. Yeah. So, you know, the the desire to keep that a secret, you know, I think is, is sort of understandable okay. and, and plays it like... Yeah, so, yeah. so there's some self-preservation at play there. Yeah, it, it, she undoubtedly like she's making a deal with the devil. Okay, you know, uh, like I, I, it's you know now that I now that I consider it, you know, he is. It's not like she's letting him walk free. It's it's the, it, she's just not mm-hmm. choosing to take life in prison to the death penalty to preserve Ex- a, yeah. exactly a her own interest. Yeah, and and probably but she also knows. Yeah. She also knows how much bright beauty means to him, and he is losing bright beauty. She knows that that is more than anything she could do. Taking away his ship is probably the most traumatic thing she can do to him. Yes, and also, and and and, and also um, consigning him to a life in prison. Um, and as 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 we get, you know, um, a few times throughout the book, and then especially in the the very last line of the book. Uh, we know that Angus has uh, uh, a deep and abiding fear and hatred of being locked up. Uh, and yeah. now apparently that's what's going to happen to him for the rest of his life. So in a sense, that punishment might even be worse for him than death. Um, because we've seen him at a couple of points in the story, basically on the verge, but when he acknowledges that he's beaten, basically getting ready to uh, to just pack it in and... Uh, um, and accept his uh, his fate, um, but then you know he, uh, events conspire to so that he gets out of that. Um, nevertheless, um, it's you know it's an open question whether for him prison uh, is is really better than uh, than death. So that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's maybe one more deeper psychological thing there as well, which is that. I think by the end of this story, despite the fact that he's virtually robbed her of all her humanity, I think Morn begins to get some glimpses into Angus to the point where she... I'm not sure if she would say she takes pity on him, um, but she sees him... She sees him in this revealed as a weak, insecure, pathetic sort of person. Um, And I think that changes her uh, desire, in a sense, to um, uh, and and shifts it away from maybe wanting to to punish him as such um, towards something else. Yeah, I was going to say, she, her view of Angus shifts from him being malevolent to him being pathetic. Exactly. Okay. And the fact that he does, he also chooses to keep the secret about Nick and his security contacts, that, like, I don't understand that either. Why doesn't he out Nick? Uh, read and find out. Okay. okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm through my character points. I'm ready to go into miscellaneous little points here, if you guys have nothing else about characters. Uh, I I do not. Um, there are things I want to say, but I can't because they're spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> God. This is going to be the next five, six episodes, isn't it? Or eight episodes. Something like that. 
Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I, this is this is this is particularly the kind of story where it can be difficult to talk about characters right up front because once you've seen the whole story play out, uh, or even just the first few books, it gives you a vastly different perspective on what you witness here. It's just in this this sort of preamble to the major story. So. Gotcha. For that reason, it's strange, and especially I think for first, people who are reading this for the first time, uh, it, it might, some of the things that we're saying might sound very strange. Um, but the, the the key is that you have to read on and see what happens, um, and then once you do, I think you it, it's much easier to understand um, how difficult it is to uh, to give snapshots of, the, of of some of these characters and how difficult it is to sort of treat them fairly as a reader. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very, very much. I mean, I've been on both sides of that coin myself. I've been the one who's read the book, <laughs> not wanting to spoil, and I've been the one who's trying to figure things out. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, let's let's move into some miscellaneous points. Uh, Rob, sounded like you had some some stuff to bring up. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, my first miscellaneous point is about these zone implants and how terrifying they are, and how I now have a new unasked for source of nightmare fuel. Volition could be suppressed without interrupting consciousness or cooperation. Yikes. That is terrifying. Especially because I just uh, just yep. shared a link yep. to our uh, Inking Out Loud chat the other day. Um, the zone implant jokes that went around in that chat make a little more sense uh, to me. I'll share it to you, Matt, as well. Um, zone implants are basically real now. <laughs> Uh, they were developed to help people with Parkinson's disease, neurological disorders, and uh, straight up like implanted electrodes in your brain that can help redirect and, and rewire your psychology. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to do that if we're going to be able to cure things like Parkinson's, epilepsy. It's it's just it's mm-hmm. going to have to happen. You know, there are going to be positives and negatives to, to that technology. Hopefully a lot more positives. Yeah. Yeah. I'll raise a drink to Elon Musk right now, but I'll just be drinking Coke Zero. (laughs) All right. Uh, Next miscellaneous point, Drew or Matt, who has one? uh, I don't really have much. Matt, what do you think, dude? Anything miscellaneous? Any little points you just want to throw away and talk about how cool or disturbing or terrifying they are? Uh. Yeah, off the top of my head, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think we mainly covered it. Give me a second to, to well, think we'll about. Well, we'll see if you can um, riff off of what I've got here, perhaps, both of you. Um, this may have been a yeah, better style, better suited for a style point, but I could only find the one example that I have here, so I'm not sure if it's a stylistic thing or perhaps it was just a, yeah, a one-time quirk. Um, uh, but I, I wrote down the quote here. I saved it for casual mention right here in the miscellaneous. After the st- This is, comes after the Star Master is wrecked. All right, The UMCP ship terrified him. The survivors terrified him. And the EVA always terrified him. But he thought about air and revenge and went to get them. And there's something so fitting when I was reading that concerning this character about both of those variables that he specifically mentally checks off. Air, basic, incredibly basic. Revenge, nebulous. There's poetry here. And it almost slipped by. It almost slipped by me. And it makes me wonder what I must have missed if anything, amongst these these little subtly genius lines that go unnoticed to me. <laughs> but I found this one. I noticed this one, and I went, that was really, really clever. I liked that one. Yeah. Yes, it is a good one. And it's, it's another good example of the way that, that Donaldson likes to mix his uh, uh, sort of physical and, and psychological characteristics. Uh, someone mentioned before... Uh, I think it was you, Rob, about sweating hate and things like that. Um, yeah. That's that's a great sort of Donaldson uh, uh, trope in his writing, um, or, or sort of blending these things together like that. So yes, I, I think it's a really a good one. And in that particular scene, I do think he does a really good job of capturing uh, the fear of being uh, in a vacuum uh, yeah. uh, that, that Angus like experiences. Air and revenge, and yeah. went to get them. I just the juxtaposition there is it's lyrical. I love it. Mm. I just it makes me want to go and reread what I just read before I even continue, which is very very rare for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, my last, uh, actually, sorry, my second last, my miscellaneous point, I gotta say Donaldson can write very cheekily, very charming, in a way. A lot of the dialogue that isn't dialogue, but is totally dialogue still, got me really good. In Chapter 2, were you being shot at? I wasn't. No. No, I was trying to blast a rock, and the dispersion reflected, and I hit myself, yada, yada, yada. Well, that doesn't sound very plausible. No. <clears throat> but has there been a crime? You know, it's just, it was very entertaining to follow. And it, it's, it's very <laughs> easy, again, this was with Sokorso. Uh, it it's very easy to like some of these characters. He's, and he also seems to do it effortlessly. Again, he here being Donaldson. It was, it's just, it's, it's entertaining writing. And I loved it. Um, and my last, <laughs> my last point is his gap sickness. I yeah. read far too much Brandon Sanderson not to catch on to this right away. I need to know more about this gap sickness. I need to know what's causing it. And I need to know if it's somehow linked to a greater existential threat for humanity. How's my aim? Don't I, oh, I don't want you to answer that, but I want you uh, to answer that in, in some way. Do you want to tease me? Anything? No, you're reading too much into I'm it. I'm reading too much into it? Damn it. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's everything I have to say about the real story with the, what was it, 160, 180 pages we were given. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for the next book, though. Yeah. yeah. And I'm ready for the final draft. Uh, one one yeah, miscellaneous yeah, let's, uh, point. Let's that, talk about, oh. Sorry, if, if it's okay. Yes. So, Go ahead, dude. Yeah. One miscellaneous point that I wanted to raise was I, I really like the way that Donaldson writes terror and uh, sort of fatigue to the point of collapse. Again, this is something you see in a lot of different books, and you get it at least two different times just within this own short book. People pushing themselves way beyond the limits of human in endurance and how you write that and how you communicate that to the to the reader. Uh, this relates, mm -hmm. amongst other things, uh, to, to the scene Rob described a minute ago when Angus goes looking for air and revenge. There's a whole sequence, and it... Technically, it lasts across probably, I think it's about three or four days uh, where these events happen. And at every second of every one of those days, Angus is at the limit of his exhaustion. And somehow he manages to keep going and going and going. And I really do like the way that Donaldson describes that and the way that he describes Angus's relentless, instinctual drive to survive uh, and all of the awful things that he does as a part of that um, so that's one of the aspects of uh, Donaldson's writing that always really comes home to me again it's it, you see it in some of his different novels as well I like it I agree yeah that's a good point and and Donaldson even makes it um metaphorical in a sense where uh, as Angus is taking these steps beyond his like physical event horizon you know, like beyond the the capacities of his physical body he's doing more and more horrible things and in turn his body is becoming disfigured we get these descriptions you know his stomach is distended he, you know he's got the dark rings under his eyes his uh, hollow cheeks and we're seeing him not only become a monster philosophically but literally as well like he is transforming into something ugly as he's performing all of these actions well said yeah, yeah. all right are we ready for the final draft gentlemen shall i kick us off go for it okay i am still sober everybody i am over two months now i believe i haven't had a drop of alcohol in that time so i'm still i'm going for the ever faithful since i'm also on keto as well Coke Zero. You know, get some of that carbon in, in me. Get some of that sugar, or not sugar. <laughs> replacement sugar. Yeah, replacement it's boring, sugar. But it's healthy. No, it's not even that, is it? Aspartame is terrible <laughs> for your heart, I hear. I can't even claim that it's healthy. But it's uh, <laughs> it's all I've got. It's all I want. I'm just going yeah, with yeah. Coke Zero. How about you guys? Yeah, Matt, what, uh, what do you got over there? Oh, uh, well, it's uh, evening where I am, so I'm about to uh, have a cocktail. I think I'm going to have a rum and coke this evening. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Nice. Can't go wrong yeah. with rum and coke. <laughs> yeah, as, as Matt mentioned, uh, Matt is in England, and, and so 
it's evening for him. It's morning for me, midday for Rob. I am, uh, I'm just finding that out now. Matt, you're in the UK? Yes, yes. That's why we're recording this at uh, okay. what is a very strange time for for, uh, for, the, for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but as a result, I was going to, you know, I had planned a beer for this episode, but I, uh, I had to not drink it because we started this episode at 9 a.m. for me and there was no way I was going to drink a double barrel aged uh, barley wine at 9 a.m. Um, uh, unfortunately, but it's okay because I'll be able to use that for a, a later episode in this series anyway. Okay. Uh, but I am drinking a beer, uh, something much lighter uh, uh, from Anchorage Brewing Company. It's a, a double India pale ale. Double dry hopped with Strata, Melba, Galaxy, and Motuka hops. And it is called Better This Way. And that is what Morn convinced Angus of at the end of the book. Okay. And I gotta say, I also have an IPA from Anchorage called Revenge, and I nearly brought that one on. (laughs) Oh, see, it's poetry. George Lucas would be proud. Yeah, oh, yeah. man, both of those are snipes. <laughs> I have to think of something clever to bring on that does not contain alcohol. Hmm. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I should, hmm. I'll look into it. I still, have to, I still have to keep up. I mean, I've had a few good entries before, but for the past few little, you know, few weeks, it's been slim pickings when you can't have sugar or alcohol. I gotta say, I was worried waking up this morning. I was like, I don't know if I can do a beer. <laughs> I can't. I, I didn't even but, realize that it was eleven a.m. for me. It would be nine a.m. for you. Yeah, but I, I on a Saturday, dude, ate a little, ate a little bit of breakfast, got some food in me, so I could, I could uh, stomach alcohol at nine a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> that blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. I love but, my weekends. Far too much to do that. All right, gentlemen, <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah, so that that brings us to the end of our coverage of The Real Story. Uh, This has been episode 118 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we are going to be covering the first 11 chapters of the second book, Forbidden Knowledge. And uh, I'm not sure what our guest lineup is going to look like for that one. Uh, I think my wife wants to come on for that. Uh, She she wants to talk mourn quite a bit. Um, uh, but uh, I imagine there will also be some other McCaffreys. Uh, I don't know if Matt will be able to join us, but uh, <laughs> but thankfully there are many of them in his family. Yeah, so. there's no danger of a sudden <laughs> shortage. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, and and as always, you know, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/InkingOutLoud. Get access to all kinds of bonus content, monthly newsletter original fiction by Robert myself uh, early access to episodes bonus episodes the whole whole nine yards as always I have been your host Drew McCaffrey and with me is my co-host Rob Santos right here. and our special guest Matt McCaffrey thanks for joining us Matt thanks for having thank me guys thank you so much man yeah and to our listeners thanks for checking in with us and we'll catch you next time bye everyone